0: disrupt the status quo of healthcare education. This is our journey, and thanks for listening. Are you a third-year physical therapy student that excels on tests when you have study guides, checklists, and deadlines? With all of the information available about how to prepare for the NPTE, it's easy to get disorganized and not feel prepared going into the big day. NPTE Prep Success is an online course that provides PT students easy-to-use study guides, and step-by-step guidance through the NPTE preparation. To learn more, visit KyleRicePrep.com. Thank you again all for your continued support, and now for the show.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Wyrock, and I'm joined by my co-host, Brandon Poen. Today, we welcome Dr. William Boisenault. Onto the show for a discussion into medical screening and differential diagnosis in entry and post professional PT education. Bill is also the Executive Vice President of Professional Affairs for the APTA and Professor Emeritus at the University of Wisconsin Madison, where he teaches medical screening and differential diagnosis for physician referral. He is the editor of the textbook Primary Care, The Physical Therapist, Examination and Triage and past co-editor of Pathology, Implications for the Physical Therapist, Volume 1. He has multiple journal articles related to differential diagnosis and physical therapist practice. And Bill, I know that, you know, we could probably go on for days about all the accomplishments that you've made in PT and everything that you've contributed to the profession. So there's more to the biography than I read, but... Do you know, That's Okay. what <laughs> do you think that you can uh, tell our listeners maybe a little bit more about yourself, your journey, and how it's led to where you are today, and how you became interested in differential diagnosis?
2: Okay. All right. I'd be very glad to do that. First of all, thank you for the invitation. I'm, I'm very pleased to do this. Um, yeah, in terms of my career path in, in medical screening, differential diagnosis, you know, I came out of uh, PT school in 1977. And back then, you know, I was taught some basic red flag examination, you know, schemes and and questions. So I knew back then, somebody with low back pain, I should ask about bowel and bladder problems. Um, You know, I knew to screen the, you know, the nervous system, et cetera. Um, But it didn't go much beyond that. And so for the first seven years of my career, I mean, I was, when I saw a patient in those days, almost all patients had been seen by a physician, referred by a physician, I assumed that PT was was where they belong, so I had some pretty thick blinders on. Um, and then, not surprisingly, the best lessons I've ever learned in my career have come from patients. So, I was in a private practice up in uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul, and had a patient who'd seen a physician, had plain films and CT taken of his low back, um, they didn't find anything, and he was diagnosed with mechanical back pain syndrome, which was a, a common diagnosis that we saw. And You know, he was, and he presented with mechanical back pain. There were no red flags. I asked him about bowel and bladder issues, and I worked with him for a month, and then he was scheduled to go back and see the physician. And um, so I contacted the physician and said, You know, he hasn't made much change functionally, but I think he's working hard, and if we keep plugging away, he'll start coming around symptomatically. And so the doc said, Fine, you know, I'll send him back to you. Um, then about three weeks later, I ran into the physician in the hallway and said, you know, hey, by the way, patient so-and-so, he's not on my schedule. And the, um, and the, the doc said, you know, he apologized. He said, no, I'm sorry, I should have called you, but he's got cancer. I said, cancer? I said, where did that come from? Because he, he seemed perfectly fine to me. And uh, he said, well, when, the, when I saw the patient, he, he complained of some recent bowel changes. We ran some tests, and he's got colon cancer, and he's got metastasis." And I said, well, I asked him about bladder problems, you know, the first visit, and he told me the answers, all the answers were no. And the doctor said, well, that's what he told me when I first saw him as well, but these are, this is something that had changed. And during the time he was, the patient was seeing me. So we didn't have much time to chat, uh, but of course I was upset, um, you know, thinking, why didn't the patient tell me? You know, how did I miss this? And, you know, the prognosis was not good for the guy. So I, I felt miserable. And um, so about a week later, I called the doc again and said, you know, can we meet and talk about this, this patient? Because it really bothers me that, you know, I, I should have done something different. So he agreed. So I took him out for breakfast. He liked breakfast. I took him out for breakfast. And um, he made a point to tell me that, look, even if you had called me two weeks earlier, the prognosis was not going to change. So he's trying to make me feel better. And um, But the discussion we had kind of helped make me realize that, the screening process, it's ongoing. You know, I used to ask all my special questions day one, and if the answer is no, I never i never went back and checked in with the patient again. And not that I'm completing the entire screening exam every single visit. That's not necessary. But I need to keep in the back of my mind that something may be changing and not assuming the patient's going to tell me. So I ended up meeting with this doc. I took him out for breakfast once a month for about a year and a half, actually, uh, just kind of picking his brain, sometimes about... Patients he had sent me, sometimes other patients, he would say, Bill, you need to read this and do this. And, but I learned a lot of lessons from that patient and that physician made me realize I needed to change my approach to the exam- how I examine patients and, and, and my thought process. Um, so that's really got me started in this and digging into literature, and that led to some of the publications and things that I've
0: done Like you had said, like kind of some of the best lessons that we learn are from patients and even sometimes our mistakes when we look back. And I think that's what really drives us. And I think that's a really powerful story. And obviously, knowing that there's a lot of other conditions out there that can mimic pain that we can initially think is musculoskeletal in nature, you know, what are some of the most common systemic causes of pain that are initially kind of out there that usually are not mechanical in nature? And how prevalent are these systemic causes?
2: That's a really good question, because you know that was, that was my concern after I saw this patient. I mean, I left that initial meeting, hallway meeting with the doc thinking, half my patients have tumors, the other half have, have infections, and I'm missing them all, and, and it's, it's not the case. Um, we do need to appreciate that a vast, vast majority of patients that we see with common symptoms, whether it's pain, paresthesia, numbness and weakness, PT is where they belong. Their health status doesn't warrant um, you know, physician input uh, at that particular point in time, so most of the, the vast majority of the patients we see PT is where they belong. Now, the most common causes, you know, when you look at the the general population diseases and injuries, what we are most likely to run into, and, and again, i thinking outpatient ambulatory settings uh, would be fracture, um, you know, significant soft tissue injury where you're worried about joint instability, uh, you know ligamentous injury. Uh, uh, cartilage or meniscal injury, those are the most likely causes. When you get into the visceral systems and, and systemic diseases, you know, like cancer and infection, you know, they're, they're, they're really rare. They're really rare, um, and it's somewhat dependent upon age group. So in the MSK world, if you're working with people over the age of 50, you're more likely to run into occult cancer uh, potentially heart disease that is, is causing symptoms um, and potentially progressive neurological disorders and um, you know, caudio syndrome being the worst case scenario. Um, if you're working with the people in their, in their 20s, 30s, early 40s, you're more likely to run into um, systemic connective tissue disorders, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, ankylosing spondylitis, kind of both categories of diseases. And then kids, they have their own set. I mean cancer, you know, bony cancer, the most common age group is people over the age of 50. That'll be a metastatic bony tumor. And then our kids and our adolescents were the primarily primary bony tumors. And they'll present primarily as pain in the, in the very early stages. Now having said that, uh, of all the cancers we are likely to run into, when you look at numbers in the general population, it's skin cancer. Now they don't cause pain, unfortunately, um, unless they metastasize, is, is the general rule. Um, but you know, in, in the U.S., um, there's pro- <clears throat> there's projections that there'll be between one and two million new cases a year in basal and squamous cell carcinoma, and maybe 90,000 new cases of melanoma, which are, are they're the nastier ones. You know, compared to breast and prostate cancer, where you're looking maybe between 200, 200 and 250,000 new cases. So skin cancer is one that we're more likely to see, uh, but but it's not symptomatic uh, typically. We pick it up in our postural assessment or our regional exam where we notice a skin lesion that would have unusual characteristics.
1: What are some of the most important takeaways that students should be aware of when it comes to medical screening and differential diagnosis?
2: Well, uh, a big one relates to how patients access our services. Um, I don't hear very much anymore, but I don't... 30 years ago, I would hear that this medical screening was only important for direct access patients. Um, and with the assumption, which was how I approached patient care early on, that they had seen a physician, that the physician would have done all the screening and, uh, and there'd be nothing left for us really to worry about. So lesson one is we need to screen patients regardless how they get to us, physician referral or direct access. Even if they've seen a, a doc two days ago, that makes me a little more comfortable but we just can't assume anything. And for a couple of reasons. One, disease has its own schedule in terms of when it's gonna show up clinically. And things can change dramatically, you know, a matter within 48 hours, or especially within a matter within a week or even a couple of weeks. So disease has its own schedule. Also kind of based on your first question is that many serious diseases in their early stages simply present as pain. And if it's disease of the MSK system, it can present with a mechanical pain pattern, which only really makes us much more comfortable with the, the patient's health status. Um, the other thing is, is to not make an assumption that if there's something wrong with the patient's health, that they're automatically going to call their physician, call their medical doctor up. Um, it amazes me sometimes what people are willing to put up with and live with um, and, and come in to see me. And sometimes it's because I've worked with them in the past and we have a good professional relationship, or they just don't see the urgency when it's pretty clear to me, I, we need to be worried about this. Um, so those are the, I think, kind of the, the broad pictures, uh, take home messages that it's important for students to understand.
0: Yeah, and that seems to certainly make a lot of sense, Bill. And, you know, I kind of wanted to go back earlier to what you had kind of touched on initially to give an example. So, like you kind of mentioned, of course, when patients present to the clinic with varying signs and symptoms, we do do red flag screening and sometimes tests to rule down the likelihood of someone having something more sinister underlying. But I want to dive into how accurate these methods are from what the evidence says. So what do we know regarding how accurate our screening methods are for some of the most common systemic underlying pathologies, such as cancers, infections, myelopathy, and just some of the big players here?
2: Um, that's also a really good take-home message for for the students is that for those kinds of diseases, there's no health profession professional. Who can make a definitive diagnosis simply based on history and physical examination? This is a screening process, it's not a diagnostic process. And so, a diagnosis is made based on advanced imaging, a biopsy, they aspirate the joint. That's how the diagnosis is made. So, in terms of the red flags that, that suggest to me that physician um, or medical tests are warranted, um, the research that's out there demonstrates that one red flag finding all by itself rarely, rarely constitutes or warrants a a referral. Give you an example. There was a study done. This was in Australia a few years ago by Neil Henschke and his group. Um, They followed uh, just under 1,200 patients coming in to see a GP internist type of physician with back pain. And the physicians were taught to ask a standard list of 25 red flag questions. And so they documented how many yes responses uh, for each of the patients. And then, also it was, what was the diagnosis that the patient uh, had that was generating their back pain? And they followed patients up for 12 months. And 80% of the patients had at least one red flag finding. And yet, only about 1% of the patients had something medically wrong with their back. So, that's not a very good yield. Um, and so, it's, again, it's rare that one finding by itself... Now, when you start clustering you know, four or five findings together that's when the statistical, the probability needle starts moving some. And you're back pain uh, with cancer, uh, cancer causing back pain is a good example. Um, the red flag findings that have the most important statistically include a personal history of cancer, unexplained weight loss over the age of 50 and not responding to conservative care. Uh, when you lump those together, it's still more likely they don't have cancer but according to the experts, when you lump those together, then there needs to be a conversation about potentially advanced imaging uh, to rule out, hopefully rule out, and maybe rule in. Um, so that's one of the challenges. The other, the other other, challenges, one is a red flag, really a red flag. When you talking about systemic disease, some of the common symptoms include fatigue, a little bit of nausea, unexplained weight loss, um, maybe a little bit of malaise, you know, feeling run down, those are non-specific, And who's not tired? You know, we're all tired. So what's the threshold that makes a fatigue complaint really a red flag? Our weight. You know, our weight can fluctuate up or down, X number of pounds, depending on all kinds of things. So it's important to understand what, ha- what, what makes fatigue a red flag versus not. So the general rule is it needs to be interfering with function, present for two to four weeks or longer, and there's no explanation for it. So some of these red flag findings require a second, third, or fourth question to determine is it a red flag or not? So that, that's one of the challenges. Um, so not, no surprise, not surprisingly, a lot of the, the, the strongest guidelines out there statistically constitute um, are made up of more than one criterion as you can imagine, as, as you can imagine, and that's what it takes to drive a different uh, clinical decision.
1: I think you make a good point there, Bill. Um, finding these clusters and identifying these patterns is a really important part of becoming an expert clinician. So then my next question is, do you feel that graduates from DPT programs across the country are adequately prepared in differential diagnosis and medical screening and are able to pick up on these patterns?
2: I think generally yes. Um, You know, again, I've not seen any benchmark survey data of, you know, all the programs, exactly what they teach. You know, CAPTI has some general evaluative criteria that kind of help drive a curriculum in terms of minimum standards. Um, and certainly compared, and this, I think a lot of it has to do with direct access, even though I said, we need to screen regardless how they get to us, direct access has helped drive education in that direction. So, you know, I believe that um, students are getting the guidelines, the DVT guidelines, some of the imaging guidelines are routine. Um, you know, we've been teaching the bottom bladder questions forever for patients that have low back pain. So I think direct access and going to the DPT has driven this area in terms of the education process. There's more depth and breadth than what was taught before. But Stephanie, you're right. I mean, a new grad is still a new grad. Is a novice practitioner whether you're talking about somebody who's come out just come out of med school, dental school, or a PT program. And so I think the students, they're getting the information, um, but with experience and hopefully mentorship, um, they start recognizing those patterns faster and faster.
0: Right. And then even just recognizing like the specifics of those clusters, making sure you're getting accurate information, you know, to make sure you can really tease out what's more likely to be a true red flag, what may not be a true red flag. And then kind of putting that in line with your mechanical exam and seeing what your findings are there. Because a big thing I've always learned is if you can't change symptoms, no matter what you do, should start thinking about maybe there might be something else potentially.
2: Yeah, you're exactly right. For the MSK patient, that is, that, 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 that's one of, one of the big assumptions. Um, and also part of the screening process is response to treatment. Trial uh, treatment is an important part of our examination scheme and so if I position a patient, I do an exercise, I do a manual therapy technique, and I stand the patient back up and they move better with less pain, they're walking faster, that, that, that generally makes me more comfortable that PT is where they belong. And response to conservative care actually is part of some of the guidelines out there screening for for serious diseases. So, so we do collect a lot of information. Um, that helps us make this bottom line decision. Do I treat, treat and refer or refer only?
0: Right. And, you know, and obviously seeing that you've done a lot of teaching regarding this specific topic, you know, how do you feel that differential diagnosis and medical screening optimally should be taught in entry level PT education?
2: I think ideally it's integrated throughout the curriculum. It's almost a transcurricular theme and it can start in anatomy. Um, so it's not just identifying, oh, there's the kidney, but see the kidney's relationship to the trunk. And so if a kidney is causing pain, it's more like it's going to cause back pain, not abdominal pain. Um, so in terms of making anatomy relevant um, outside our neuromusculoskeletal system, um, I think that's where it can start. Also, in, in, that's also where imaging I think can easily be uh, initiated in the curriculum. Um, That's one reason why we learn anatomy, so we can identify structures on a plain film or on MRI or even maybe ultrasound. Um, So there's nothing wrong with having a medical screening course. Um, When I taught at Madison, we had two. We had, they were called clinical medicine courses and they encompass medical screening, imaging, and pharmacology. But, so it can package multiple ways, but the sooner it's introduced, the better. Um, at Madison, we used to, the medical screening course used to be in the very last semester and it was feedback from students who were telling us we need this information sooner because they're going out in their clinicals and they said this information would have been helpful before they went out in their clinicals. So then we moved it to the, to the front end of the curriculum and then tried to reinforce it throughout. So teaching it in context around patient cases, patient vignettes, and introducing it as early as possible and then continuing as a theme I think are important concepts.
1: What resources would you recommend to the student or clinician that wants to get better at medical screening or differential diagnoses if for like books, CEUs, podcasts, any specific recommendations you have?
2: You know, the, the pathology book by Catherine Goodman and Terry Snyder is dynamite. Um, you know, it's written by PT, for PTs, and, and it really makes it relevant to our practice. So in terms of a PATH book, um, I think that's, that, that, that's the best that's out there. You know, um, you know, Catherine also has a book on differential diagnosis that she's in her third or fourth edition. You know, I think the book that she did and then I, that I've done early on are probably the two that are utilized the most. Um, but you know, there are also like, programs are moving away from the textbooks and more related to the literature, systematic reviews. Um, you know, PT Now is a great resource for students and faculty, uh, not just related to this topic, but to lots of other topics where, you know, they, they, can, they can type in deep vein thrombosis and all kinds of information are going to come up related to management as well as screening. Um, so those are kind of things that come through off uh, the top of mind.
0: Got it. And, you know, and Bill, thank you for kind of just sharing. I know your insight on this topic because it's very, very important because, you know, I think people that like you had kind of said your story earlier, kind of brought you in. I think when you have an experience like that, it always kind of sets the alarm up in your mind ever since an incident like that happened. So I think It's a big message for students, clinicians, and faculty to remember. And we usually like to ask this last question at the end of each episode because with us being the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, we want to kind of ask this question. So the question is, if you could change one aspect of healthcare education, uh, PT or otherwise, which aspect would you change and how would you change it?
2: I think the, the sooner our students Get involved in uh, in clinical education. The better, um, the sooner they interact with other healthcare providers, the better. Um, you know, knowing who the healthcare team is, the various roles, responsibilities that that people can can play, um, is critical. And so the students start seeing their CIs and faculty, how they develop relationships with other health professionals. Um, and the reason I pushed that because that is what's best for the patients. I'm all about what's best for the patients. And that ties into this medical screening process. It's all about the patient. Um, but the relationships that I developed over the years in the various hospitals and practices I've worked in with physicians, you know, there were physicians I could walk down the hallway. When I had a patient, I had questions. But I, could, I could go find a physician down the hallway that I had a good relationship with and say, hey, what do you think? What should I be thinking here? or can you come take a take a look at this patient with me? i worked in some non-hospital-based private practices, and we're the only health provider in the building. So then you have to work harder to build relationships uh, and, and to communicate. Um, but I think the sooner the students experience patient care, they see communication occurring between PTs and other healthcare providers, and hopefully their, the role modeling is, is what it should be, um, that can't happen soon enough. And so there's a... How best to do that, how best not to do that, is to have somebody come in and do a one-hour lecture on their profession. Um, Not that that's bad, but, you know, it's forgotten almost when I do remember probably from PT school, um, and I used to go in and do a one-hour lecture on on physical therapy for the medical students at Madison, and some of the residency programs. And so for the first two years, I had all these slides about what PTs do and You know, we see work with, you know, individuals across the lifespan and, you know, the students who attended, their eyes would glaze over after about 10 minutes. And um, actually the third time, so I went back the third year to do that, and five minutes into the same old lecture, and I'm thinking, I've lost them already. So I asked the group, who in here has low back pain? And three people raised their hands and said, wouldn't you be willing to allow me to demo, to do an exam on you and do a demo in front of your classmates? And so one of the people volunteered, I called everybody up front around the classroom. I did a history, you know, a brief physical exam, did education. And then I kind of worked in what, what PT was, you know, outside the back pain area. I got more mileage out of that. And so again, learning in context is, to me is, is the best way.
1: I think that's a great story, Bill, because you know a lot of providers don't know what we do. And so by demonstrating our skill, and also talking about um, what we're thinking as we're going through our exam is probably the best way that you can teach medical students because they're never going to see that again.
2: Right, right. That's, that's exactly right. Uh, so in in this kind of bridging this communication gap with physicians and nurses, it's not fair. It's just the way, but it's just the way it is. It's in my experience that I've had to work harder to bridge that gap. Um, but it was, it was worth it. In, in the long term, it was, it was better for me, more educational, and it was better for the patients that I was working with.
1: Well, this has been an amazing talk, Bill. I always love talking to you at conferences and seeing you around. You've done so much for this profession. You know, if people want to reach out to you, where can they find you? How can they get a hold of you?
2: Easily. Um, so, uh, Bill and at APTA.org. Um, I check my email pretty neurotically. And um, yeah, if there are questions about this topic, are people looking for resources? Uh, if I don't know the answer, I can typically find someone who, who would know the answer.
0: Well, thanks so much, Bill. And we appreciate your time, your efforts. Keep doing the great work you're doing. And thanks for coming on.
2: Thank you both very, very much. Appreciate the invitation. Okay.
0: Access to healthcare is one of the largest issues facing both providers and patients as millions of people worldwide lack timely and affordable access to healthcare. Anywhere Healthcare, a telehealth platform, is a simple, low-cost option for providers and patients that eliminates the barriers to access to all kinds of healthcare. To find out more, check out anywhere.healthcare.com which is available on our show notes. And if you use the code HET in all caps when you email to sign up, you'll save 25% off the total cost. Thank you for attending class today. And we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content. If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HETpodcast, on Instagram, HETpodcast, on Facebook, The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast,